Welcome to the IPSE podcast. We are IPSE, the independent press standards organisation, the regulator of 95% of the UK's newspapers and magazines. These podcasts are for people who are interested in newspapers, the media, journalism, how the press is regulated, and of course, our work. I'm Vicky, I'll be your host, and I'm joined today by Chief Executive Matt T. Hello, Matt T. Hello, Vicky. And we are talking about the Kerslake Review and IPSE's response and also a bit more broadly about reporting of any major incidents and how IPSA can help with this. So obviously, Matt, uh, the Kerslake review and the Manchester Arena attack is something that's been in the news for the past couple of weeks due to the anniversary. Um, I'm sure most people are aware, but for those who aren't, the review is the independent review of events and the aftermath, which was conducted by Bob Kerslake, and it looked at a number of responses to the arena attack, um, lessons learned, and it made a number of recommendations for various agencies to improve their response. So before we talk about what the report said and what IPSO is going to do in response to it, I want to take just a step back and look at some of the challenges of reporting from situations like Manchester, um, what the rules are for journalists in kind of cases like this. Um, because clearly it's a very challenging situation. It is a very challenging situation, Vicky, and uh, now we've got 24-hour media and social media as well. Um, it is People are expected to report on things almost in real time as, as they happen, and that can lead us into some difficulties. Uh, there was, for example, a, a complaint we got uh, against the Mail Online where there'd been an incident as a underground station in London and Mail Online reported it as possibly being a terrorist incident when actually it turned out not to have been at all and clearly in that sort of case it's possible to create a level of panic about things which is unnecessary and unwarranted so it's very important for journalists and editors to attempt to balance the needs of the immediacy of reporting as quickly as possible with the requirement which is always there for them to take care that what they produce is accurate. Yes, and this requirement, um, as you've said, to report accurately is something that's in the editor's code. Um, so for those who don't know, the set of rules that IPSA regulates is called the editor's code. covers kind of many different things, one of which is accuracy. Um, and also there are clauses in there which are interesting of interest to this case which are to do with harassment and privacy so just talk to us a little bit about what those rules are so <clears throat> if uh, uh, an incident has happened or, or in general life um, a journalist uh, wants to contact somebody to see if they'd like to make a comment on a story um, our rules say that if they are asked to desist or to go away that they have to do that so within our rules uh, we would say that one attempt to contact somebody was permissible, provided that if that person said, I don't want to talk to you, go away, that the journalist or the photographer concerned left it at that and went away. Okay, um, and at this point I think that we should also mention some of Ipso's harassment services. Mm -hmm. um, so how can mm -hmm. Ipso help in kind of a, a situation where there might be um, large media interests? Well, in a situation where somebody who might be an, an ordinary private individual finds that 
they're part of a media story and the press are very interested and, and perhaps want to comment from them. And you know, to the point where there might be uh, six or seven journalists and photographers outside their door, we offer a service called Private Advisory Service where if that person doesn't want to speak to the press, they can let us know and we can send a private note to all editors to tell them that person doesn't want to speak to the press. That has the effect of that person telling each of those journalists individually that they don't want to make a comment. And so, uh, as I was, we was explaining earlier, uh, the rules on harassment say that if asked to leave, that the journalist mustn't make another con attempt to contact. And that's the effect that our private advisory notice has. It's like being told, it's like the newspapers all being told that that person doesn't want to speak to them and so they shouldn't make another attempt to get in touch with them. Okay, and if people want to find out more details about this service, uh, there is lots of information on our website, which is ipsa.co.uk. Um, and click on harassment and you can find out more about that service. Including the 24-hour telephone number which you can contact literally at any time of the day or night, 365 days a year, if you feel that you're being harassed by the media. Absolutely. Um, so we've said that accuracy in reporting is particularly important. So the onus here is on the newspaper to get things right. Um, so I just want to talk very briefly about um, a complaint that we had, the only complaint that we had relating to the Manchester Arena attack, which is Gorman versus the Daily Star. So this is a complaint from a lady who um, saw on the front page of the Daily Star that her daughter's uh, Facebook picture had been used in a montage of people that were missing in the attacks in the attack. So this was kind of in the very immediate aftermath where people were still kind of looking for family members. Um, and in fact, the complainant's daughter was not involved in the attack at all. Um, and her picture had kind of been used in a sort of tweet hoax um, around this. So um, she made a complaint to us. Um, and even though the Daily Star corrected this um, pretty promptly, kind of mm -hmm. the day after, um, the complaint was still upheld, wasn't it? It was. Uh, our feeling was that the Daily Star should have taken more care to ensure that the pictures it was using and the things it said about the people depicted in the pictures uh, were accurate. In a situation like this where um, it is very sensitive and what we're talking about is people's relatives who may uh, have been caught up in the attack or may have been injured or possibly even killed, the duty of care of the newspaper is that much higher uh, and their, their need to get things right is, is that much more important. Absolutely, and I mean the committee did take this extremely seriously because they ordered a front page reference to that question, didn't they? They did indeed, yes. Um, okay, so let's now move on to the report of Lord Kerslake um, itself. Um, so as we've mentioned, it made a number of recommendations for a variety of organisations, including some for us. Um, so tell us a little bit about what those recommendations are. Well, I think first it's important to put this into a bit of context. What 
uh, Lord Kerslake found, although his original terms of reference didn't really cover the press, was that some of the relatives and some of the victims' families told some quite horrifying and harrowing stories about the uh, attention they'd received from journalists or from people who might have been journalists. And I think that's what's reflected in uh, Lord Kerslake's recommendations. What he uh, says is that the Independent Press Standards Organisation, we uh, should review the operation of the editor's code in the light of the experiences uh, described by contributors uh, to the review. And uh, that's a very reasonable recommendation, which we've uh, said that we will uh, absolutely action. But I think it's also important that uh, we have sat down and had a wider think about what could we do that would make the press's ability to take care and to get things right and to act sen sensitively in these instances uh, more easy. So we've got uh, a wide range of uh, responses to the Kerslake report, not all of which go to his specific recommendation, but I think all of them will make coverage of this better in the future. Um, so as you've just alluded to, we have launched a kind of more proactive plan um, for responding to this in the future. So let's talk about some of the things that IPSE has said that we're going to do, um, which one of which is to work with the Society of Editors and others in convening a kind of cross-media roundtable to discuss the issues. Because as you've said, um, in situations like this, there are a lot of different journalists, broadcasters in kind of the immediate area in the aftermath of, of an incident like this. Um, and that can, can be challenging. It, it can be challenging. Um, it, and although Ipso covers 95% or so of national newspapers and most local newspapers, um, there are freelance journalists who aren't covered by Ipso unless they're working for an Ipso publication. There are some newspapers which aren't members of Ipso and we don't cover broadcasters and we don't cover most uh, international journalists. So what we're attempting to do there is to work with the Society of Editors which uh, extends beyond newspapers and magazines into uh, other areas like broadcast to bring together uh, as broad a range of organisations that might put journalists into an area where there was a serious incident like this and to have a good conversation about whether perhaps there is a voluntary code that we could all sort of agree to adopt in good faith between us for how one approaches covering these sorts of incidents. And I think uh, tying into that, um, in previous podcasts we have talked about some of the guidance that um, we have written around kind of key areas that we get complaints about um, and also for editors and for journalists in the newsroom as well. So we've said in our action plan that we will also produce some guidance on major incidents um, for the public so that they know uh, what to expect but also where they can go for help should they need it um, and that we will also produce um, guidance for editors and journalists. Um, and tell us about the kind of further commitment in the action plans for kind of journalist training. So one of the things we think is important is that uh, it's not just as an incident happens that an editor says to a journalist, oh, you know, remember the editor's code, but that it's actually 
um, put into journalism education and that journalists at college are learning about how to, co how to cover a serious incident like the Manchester Arena attack. So we're going to work with the National Council for Training of Journalists and other journalism colleges uh, in order to look at the syllabus for journalism education and how we might be able to, to affect that so that we look at coverage of serious incidents. And we've also talked um, before about Ipsos private advisory notices um, and obviously these are very effective in dealing with kind of media harassment um, but they are not as widely known as I think we would would like them to be. I think that's absolutely right, Vicky. It, what we would really like is that the police uh, and the emergency service workers who are on the front line, who are dealing with these sorts of uh, incidents, uh, know that we operate this service so that if, for example, a police family liaison officer um, uh, sees one of the families they're looking after um, receiving media attention that they don't want, the police family liaison officer would know from, from their training uh, to get in touch with Ipso and for us to issue a, a private advisory notice. And so we're going to look at working with people like um, the Association of Chief Police Officers uh, in order to see whether there's a way of getting the Ipso private advisory service included in some of the uh, checklists that the emergency services use in the event of a major incident. Absolutely, because I think that that kind of more proactive approach is really important because when something like this is happening to you, I mean, really the last thing you would think about probably is going kind of online and searching for what to do. So it's kind of really important that um, we can kind of get the message out there before this this kind of thing happens Absolutely. Um, and which is why we are also um, kind of stepping up our work with kind of other um, emergency services and first responder services so that we can um, really raise more awareness of how we can help in these situations. Yes we've been doing things like uh, writing articles for the professional magazines for each of the emergency services so that the awareness of our um, privacy and uh, anti-harassment services is, is raised so that it's not something that people have to find out about when a major incident happens. It's part of their training. It's, it's inbuilt already. Um, and also, I think we should just mention um, that we have said that should we receive any complaints about press conduct relating to the, um, to the Manchester attack, um, that we would obviously kind of thoroughly investigate them. Absolutely, Vicky. So, uh, as I say, Kerslake's report sets out some quite harrowing things that uh, people affected by the arena attack described uh, as press behaviour or people uh, saying that they were journalists. Um, one of the things that makes it slightly difficult for Ipso is that the Kerslake report doesn't mention any specific media outlets or particular journalists, so it doesn't give us a very good basis for, for investigating specific complaints that are contained within the report. But if there are any of the people who were affected by the arena attack um, who felt that they suffered 
uh, from journalistic harassment or harassment from a newspaper, we will investigate that and we take all of those very seriously. Indeed, several of the newspaper groups have said that were it to be shown that those behaviours uh, were done by people working for them, that would be action for a disciplinary and possibly even dismissal. Absolutely. And, uh, you know, let's not forget that we'll say a kind of a very serious breach of the editor's code as well, Absolutely potentially. Right. Yes. Um, and so kind of the last thing in the action plan that we have committed to do um, is an organisational action plan, which um, can be automatically triggered and kind of after any event that kind of leads to mass casualties, for example, or some something where there might be a great deal of media attention. So uh, this is for IPSO staff, and <clears throat> as we've mentioned with the private advisory service, we have people on call 24 hours a day, so it doesn't matter what time an incident like this happens. All of our staff will have a checklist of things that we do in the case of this. So one example of that might be uh, we will have the telephone numbers and email addresses for all of the press offices for the police services around the country. So in the event of an incident like this happening, we'll get in touch with the press office at whichever police force it is that's, looking, that's handling the uh, emergency and make sure that they're aware of our private advisory service and the other things that we can do. Well, thanks very much for joining me today, Matt. Um, we hope that everyone has found this podcast interesting we'd love to uh, hear your comments so as ever you can tweet us at ipso news or um, you can get in touch with us on facebook as well um, and there is lots of information on this on ipso's website which is ipso.co.uk and we hope that you can join us again soon